I'm Dr. Megan Corredo, and welcome to Real Stories, a podcast that features the narratives of trauma survivors, professionals, and community leaders. Real Stories provides a platform for guests with diverse life experiences to voice and honor their unique narratives. During today's episode, we will be speaking with Michael O'Brien. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So can you tell us a little bit about who you are? Yeah, so um, ah, that's a, I love when it's who you are, not what you do, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so who I am, I'm, um, I'm a thinker. Right? I, I like to think. I like to um, look at problems from multiple angles, um, and I like to ask questions. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to um, make art. What kind of art? Yeah, particularly music. Uh, I write a lot, theater work. I used to do a lot of theater work, but um, I love art. And I try to incorporate it into, uh, or like the creative process into the way I think about problems and ask questions and even seek out solutions. Um, A lot of that basis of who I am shows up in my work. So Mm -hmm. I'm a director of learning at a space called the Village of Arts and Humanities. It's a nonprofit in North Philadelphia that sits at the intersection of community economic development and arts and culture. So I oversee um, all of our learning programs for young folks, um, traditionally as young as nine and up to the age of 26. Mm. Um, With COVID-19, we are heavily making a focus over the next 12 to 18 months on 14 to 26 year olds Mm. um, because of the need for income, the precarious nature of income and wages, wage access right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the ways that that group um, is typically involved in some kind of adult-like responsibilities, Mm. you know, before their counterparts were, um, you know, of, of higher class are, ever really required to be that responsible, quote unquote. So wanting to make sure that as the government and both local and state and federal government are trying to craft recovery solutions that we are um, attuning to this group's needs, because a lot of those recovery solutions, those 14 to 26 year olds don't often qualify for. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a huge thing. So what we do with young people in our learning programs, it's all pre-apprenticeship, pre-employment based, um, focused on media and creative economy and arts and culture and um, tech where appropriately connected to those uh, fields. Um, and so yeah, young people learn under a you know, master maker, a professional working creative in uh, a number of those fields and uh, are connected to real life clients. They're paid bi-weekly for their work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they get a lot of like career and uh, essentially like life coaching. You know, it's, it's, we don't like to call it life coaching; we just call it coaching. Mm-hmm. But they get access to both career and essentially like life coaching. Okay. As well, is there anything else you want to add about what you do? Yeah, so I'm also a fellow at a local think tank here in Philadelphia called the Lindy Institute for Urban Innovation at Drexel University. Um, the Lindy Institute focuses on concepts in urbanism and city building um, and looks at that in metro economies across the globe. Mm. A lot of focus on America, of course, in Philadelphia, because we're located here. Um, and I'm lucky enough to be a fellow where my work and 
practice and research can focus on the humanity of city building, mm. humanity of cities, um, like the science of cities. If you want to think about urbanism in that context, that's kind of what it is, like the science of cities. And so I look at, well, what are, the, what, what are the human sciences involved in city building and involved in activities like workforce development, the work of the future, particularly um, in the context of where the world is, right? Mm -hmm. Equity and justice as frameworks and lenses. How do you operationalize that? Because we've, we've succeeded very much so at operationalizing dehumanization, mm -hmm. right? And making policy around that and lifting that up in both formal and informal spaces of policy. So in, in informal, what I call informal, or I'll start the opposite. What I call formal spaces of policy are, you know, legislative powers and any kind of organizational, institutional, or systemic power that can write a thing down, codify it, and semi-coerce, if you will, if you will, people to abide by those policies and rules or have to consider them. Um, informal policy is. Uh, kind of like culture, right? Are things that aren't necessarily explicitly stated, but are behaved in practice. Mm -hmm. So women not being paid equally to men in the workplace, that is not a documented practice or policy in terms of here's a law or a guideline or a policy or procedure in our employee handbook, but it is widely known, widely recognized, widely researched and documented for, mm -hmm. as a phenomenon. Right. And people still do it anyway, even though it's not spoken about, right? So that's what I would call informal policy. That like it's okay to not pay women equally. It's okay to have weird hiring practices that weed out black people, brown people, blah blah blah. Mm -hmm. um, so I do think about those two things in the context of how we operationalize dehumanization and dehumanizing practices in organizational culture in um, you know, the way that systems are ideated and created by human beings, powered by human beings, um, and the way that um, roles and responsibilities play out within systems where you have the few responsible for the life trajectories of the many. Um, what does that look like? Why does it look that way? What are the frameworks that people are bringing into those spaces to create on behalf of others? And how does the like the science of our humanity, the mechanisms of our humanity, bias, imagination, problem framing, problem solving, heuristics, you know, all, all schema, right, mental models, worldview. How do all those things impact the decision makers? Mm. How, how could we do something different, you know, is really what I'm always interested in. Mm. So ask, almost like yeah. uncovering these um these things that impact decision making and impact policy, but are kind of behind the scenes and oftentimes hidden in different systems. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Because so much of it's interconnected, right? Um, so I, I, I'm really into epistemology, right? Like, well, what is knowledge? How is that codified? Who gets to say what data matters and backing up that framework of knowledge or framework of knowing a thing? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then what are all the iterative things that come after it, like policy, et cetera, and how are they impacting people? And mm. is it right, right? We've learned so much in the last 20 years um, about the human body, about the brain-body connection, about immunology and its relationship to the brain and its relationship to the stress mechanism, blah, blah, blah. I mean, just mm -hmm. things that 40 years ago 
would have seemed like fantasy are now just widely accepted as like a foundational core truth of human physiology and mm-hmm. behavior or whatever. Um, but like po- policy hasn't caught up to that. Again, formal and informal policy has not caught up to that across multiple systems. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's it. Yeah. So that's all the stuff I'm interested in. The third area of my life is a consulting practice based on that kind of research and practice based research. Okay. So we know that every individual community and system has a story and every story includes both adversity and strength. Can you talk to us about some of the adversities that you faced? Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, for context, I'm 35 and there was a time in my life that I could not fully see myself at this age. Mm. Um, there's a time in my life I didn't even know if I'd make it past my twenties, right? So um I'm super grateful to be alive. And oh, my power came on. That's what that sounds like. That is a great sound. That is. I wanted to go, yippee. Right. So <laughs> I got um so yeah, I, I just put that out there because you know, new new kind of stressor is like imagining myself forward now into like my sixties and seventies. Mm. Um, but it's a healthy stressor, right? And that, and that, like every time I think about that, I'm just so grateful and fortunate to be alive and work on all these things that I care about and to be making a living for myself the whole nine. So, mm-hmm. you know, the adversity that I've been through, um, you know, I think. Being black is not a risk factor for sure, um, but in America, it by default kind of is, right? Mm-hmm. And I've never forgotten that being black in this country is literally the epitome of this question, right? Um the mixing and interweaving of adversity and strength, um, trauma and assets, right, all at the same time and almost from second to second. Mm. And, you know, for not to get a little more specific to my life, you know, my mother survived foster care. Mm. And unfortunately, though, grew up with a series of disconnected relationships and had my two brothers at a really early age. Um, basically as a, a late teen, mm-hmm. um, had me in her later 20s. So, you know, I had the benefit of having a mom who was just older, okay. right? Wasn't fresh out of foster care. Um, and I'd learned more about parenting by the time she had me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't an adolescent, right? <laughs> so, you know, there, there were family hardships, but even in that context, I do like to point all those things out because they were just natural benefits of time and aging that I was a recipient of. Okay. Um, and I think that's important when you're talking about family dynamics and right. parents and, and siblings, because they did have a different experience than I did. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that is important to, to always consider. Um, but my family experienced homelessness, um, you know, my mother was trafficked as a teenager as well. Wow. Um, 
And I have her permission to talk about these things. Okay. You know, that was important to me to make sure. Right. Um, that I had those that permission from her. She is a warrior to me because mm. <laughs> she has overcome and challenged so many things in herself in particular. You know, my mother has a severe history of abuse. Um, and she didn't visit that upon us. Mm. And I know that's really difficult for a lot of people that grow up like that. Right. And so, you know, I could, that's her Herculean task, right? Her, um, Amazonian warrior spirit task, right? Her mm. Yoruba warrior queen, <laughs> you know, on the inside, um, working that out. And that to me is, um, the kind of gift that you don't even know you need to mm. ask for, right? Like if I cosmically could have been asked outside of time, like what's the one gift you think you need? I, that's probably the one, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, for, that, for that kind of a, um, life circumstance your parent comes from, right? So I, again, I don't take any of that lightly. And my mother taught me to love reading and to love books and to love knowledge mm-hmm. and to love questions. And she taught me music, man. My mother is why I have, I mean, this is going to sound super narcissistic, but I have a great taste in music uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and it comes from my mother. Now I only validate that because all my friends, you know, and even strangers, they all give me a lot of credit for the, my wide uh, taste of genre and my, depth of knowledge in that space but i tell them it comes from my mother my mother crafted that aesthetic Mm. and she is she i don't know if my mother ever give herself this credit i give her this credit all the time she's like i don't i don't know music like you i don't make it and i'm like that does not matter you Mm. crafted this here mother (laughs) Um, i appreciate you for it um but yeah we used to go to the library and We'd read books, get books, and we'd check out vinyls. We'd listen to vinyls together, and then we'd check out vinyls. And uh, those are some of my happiest memories ever. I've yeah. never forgotten them. Uh, I take them with me everywhere I go, you know. And um, I always encourage parents, like, read with your kids, explore stories with your kids, mm-hmm. have them ask questions, and listen to music, make art, do things, just you never know how much of an impact that has on them. So, you know, though we were experiencing homelessness and yeah, we grew up, I mean, we were, we were poor, right? Like we were um, financially poor. Right. And we had a lot of struggle in those areas. Right. And there are things that I wish didn't happen, but they happened. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, like life happens at its own speed. Right. And you're just really responding to it in many cases, right? You're just, you're born and then you're responding to life as it comes at you. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I had, you know, I, like I said, my mother was probably my, my saving grace. And, and the people that I was also fortunate that life put in my path who believed in me, encouraged me, lifted me up. Um, and the flip side of that, though, is like, I also like to name things like 
uh, I call it intellectual privilege. You know, I'm intellectual in a particular kind of way. Like I don't, because what I want to clarify there is that I think smarts and intellect exist in multiple dimensions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like being quote unquote literate the way that our society is in terms of reading, writing, and arithmetic are not the only ways to be literate, right? We talk about media literacy at the village a lot. And, you know, there are courses in media literacy. Like there's all kinds of ways to be literate. Um, like technologically literate, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's a huge thing. We're all going digital literacy. Like that's a huge thing. It is. Um, so there are so many ways to be smart, right? And to um, exercise intelligence. But in this overly Western hyper capitalist system we live in, you know, there are some specific types of intelligence that are raised above the rest and specifically codified in certain ways. And so, um, however the stars aligned and cards fell, I, I just happen to be literate in a couple of those areas that people high, uh, excuse me, hold high up over others. And it does allow you some privilege, right? Mm-hmm. And access and protections, right? Like I missed almost 60 days of school my sophomore year. I thought I was a grown-up. Wow. Back in high school. That's a lot of days. Yeah. And then by the first semester of my junior year, I'd miss like another 28. Wow. (laughs) I was just really, uh, I was in my bag. What were you doing? Being grown. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) So here's the deal. I went to a performing arts high school for half day in my district high school half day. So you went to, I went to my district high school till about 1130, 12 o'clock and then got bused downtown to the magnet um, audition based performing high school, performing arts high school where I was majoring in theater and doing a lot of singing to musical theater stuff. Okay. And you know, I would just not go to my district high. So I missed my district high school that much. right? Okay. So I wouldn't go to regular high school. I would just go to my performing arts high school in the afternoon. Okay. And, <laughs> and I was in this, um, perform the theater troupe called Looking in Theater, right? It was a paid job. We performed all over the state, sometimes outside of the state. Um, and you did it often during the school day because a lot of the performances were for schools or during scholastic hours in like, you know, residential treatment facilities, alternative schools, prisons, even youth prisons. So I missed a bunch of school for that too. Um. Right. So I was really good at gaming the system. You feel me? <laughs> Like I could make it look like I might have had looking in theater. I could write. I would forge my mom's notes. What? <laughs> I would act like I was sick and forge a note for that <laughs> uh, because everybody knew I did have bad asthma, right? Like I could uh-huh. take the truth and like mix it up in there, and like you couldn't exactly see what was real from not because it all seemed probable. Um, that took a lot of creativity too. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you use <laughs> you use what you got, right? So, um, you know, and I, I think that's the other thing to that point. I think that's also what people saw was like, you know, my teachers at one point told me. So when I got caught, because <laughs> eventually my junior year, I remember it was either December or January. Of my senior year, where I got, of my junior year, where I got caught. Mm-hmm. And I remember coming home, and my mother was just like, You don't go to school? And I was like, <laughs> I, don't go to school. I, was like 
I just came home from Academy. Look, I go to school. She's like, no, 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 you don't go to Connor. That was the name of my um, regular high school, the district high school. And I was like, no, no, I go to Connor. I was there today. And she was like, no, you haven't been going to Connor. And I was like, Ooh. okay. <laughs> like, You're like, I'm like, caught. You got me. <laughs> and, uh, and I give it to her because she does not, you know, my mother... <laughs> I can only imagine what I might have done with my kid at that. I probably would have hollered and then had to calm myself down, but just get out of my face. Go to your room. Mm -hmm. She was so calm about it. She was just like, we have a meeting with all of your teachers tomorrow, your principal, guidance counselors. You need to be up and ready in the morning. I will see you in the morning. Go to your room. And I was just like, okay. (laughs) Was it like, you know how sometimes like caregivers can have like, it, it seems like they're calm, but it's like a creepy calm because you know something oh, else is coming. Was it? Oh, did, hell yeah. Okay. <laughs> it, was, it was the mo- It was like a raging quiet fire <laughs> that I knew she masterfully in that moment. You know, she'll always say, "I gave it over to God." Mm-hmm. I'm not like God, keep me calm. Um, but she, I knew I was like, she is really in control. I don't need to fan any of the flames. It's just, yes, ma'am, go to my room. Just be ready in the morning. <laughs> really early. I'm just like, Michael, you are blessed right now. Just freaking do what you got to do, right? So mm-hmm. um, I go to this meeting. This is such a life-changing moment for me. And I knew she said all those people would be there, but like had all of my teachers, my guidance counselor was there. The head of guidance was there. Both vice principals, the principal. I was like, damn, everybody is here. And they started off, I thought I was about to get hollered at. It was the most caring meeting I think I've ever had in my life. Oh, wow. That was about me. Because it started off with, Michael, all we want is for you to graduate and get out of here. Mm-hmm. You, you, don't, like, you don't see this yet, but you don't need to be here. You don't need to be in Hartford you don't, or in West Hartford or in Hartford. You don't even need to be in Connecticut. You need to be in college. You need to be in another city. You need to see life in a different through a different lens. Like you need to just be out of here, and we want to help you get out of here. And you're not helping yourself do that right now. We want you to graduate. You are at risk of not graduating on time, and you're going to make it. So there's nothing we can do about it. You cannot miss any more school. If you miss any more school, we are going to have to keep you back. And none of us want to do that because we know you, Michael. If we keep you back, you're just going to probably quit school. Mm. And I sat there and was like, "Oh." No one's yelling. And my first time, my head was nobody's yelling at me. Mm. <laughs> I mean, we got to a point where we did have to, it got a little contentious and I got a little upset. And my mother put me in my place really fast. Okay. <laughs> you know? Um, but I heard them, right? Like I heard the plea. I appreciated it. I went home for the rest of the day, went to Academy that afternoon. Um, and thought about everything, you know what I mean? Because my mother, my mother is interesting. Is, is she? She was calm, but my mother was throwing down the gauntlet, boy. Mm-hmm. And at me, she said, "If you can't go to regular school, pull them out the academy. I will take oh. them out immediately." Oh wow! She's, she's like, "What's the point of that, Michael? You need to graduate. You need to grad." And literally, my teachers were like. Please don't take him out. If you take him out of that school, Michael will quit school. Mm. I was like, yes, I will. (laughs) And my mother was like, he's not going to quit school. And they were like, ma'am, we are begging. Please, I hear you. 
and a couple, you know, a bunch of my teachers are parents. They were like, as parents, we hear you because that would be my first inclination too. Right. And some have to say the same thing I'm saying to you, ma'am, and be like, if you think about it from his lens, that's his driver. He loves art. He loves music. That's what he wants to go to college for. He needs that school. If you pull him out of that school, he's going to look at this and be like, well, what, what's the point? And she heard that. She, she admitted it too. She said, you know, no, those are really great points. You're right. You're right. She's like, I just don't want to reward him right now. And they were like, don't see it as a reward. See it as a like crucial part of his makeup and who he is. Mm-hmm. And she was like, I hear that. That's fair. And she was like, I'm, I, yeah, I'm glad y'all said that because that reminds me of him as a kid. You're right. This is who he is. And you're right. I shouldn't pull him out. And I was super, I remember being in that moment like, oh, all these people love me. I feel so loved, even though they're all mad at me right now. I feel so loved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but that 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 story, I think, is like the epitome of intellectual privilege to an extent though because i have friends who missed just as much school and they were put in alternative school oh you feel what i'm saying yeah do you feel like do you feel like to like special ed contained classrooms okay so you feel like the fact that you were intelligent the fact that um you were likable that that was kind of a buffer for you Big time. Yeah. I mean, my parents, my parents, my teachers used to also talk about, it's funny you brought up likable because they used to talk about that. Like, oh, he's a charmer. Michael is so charming. Woo. Charm you right out of your pants. Charm you out of your shirt. <laughs> you know, charm you right out of your, you know, have you thinking, did I, did I even do, did I do the right thing? Did I say that? One of my teachers or two of my teachers said the same thing. And I mean, they're like, I have to comply with Michael to get the class to do what I want. Right. Wow. <laughs> I would always be like, but that's not my fault. Right. Like mm-hmm. I would go, no, you don't get it. This is like, you have right now unbridled leadership, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is just unbridled leadership to the likes of which like, you know, you don't, we don't see that often in students that come through. It's not like it's so unique, but on the flip side, it's pretty unique. Mm-hmm. And so you just don't know how to harness that yet. And you shouldn't cause you're a teenager. But you got to tone that in, then. So, mm-hmm. like, like, you're still responsible for that, mm-hmm. right? And it, so, like, it was such an interesting space. But like, they saw so much potential that the thought of putting me in alternative school was just not even an option. Mm. You know what I mean? And they and I had high test scores on things like the SATs and PSATs. You know, and 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 again, that's another thing people would bring up. It's like, why we? There's no reason for us to do those things. But again, that's a particular kind of intelligence that we over um, emphasize in today's overly, overly capitalist society and world. Um, because, you know, the flip side is a buddy of mine that was put in all those contained classrooms and alternative school and blah, blah, blah. He is a homeowner, mm. a beautiful homeowner, right? He um, taught himself all kinds of things. Things with like electrical engineering. My brother was like used to make parts of weapons and all. I mean, all kinds of stuff in that like electrical manufacturing space. And he full time work doing good for himself. Like he's fine. He's doing better than some other people I know who never was put in a contained classroom ever. Right, and nobody back then would have seen him as highly intelligent. Because of the way that the school system worked, mm-hmm. right? They clearly didn't. That's why they kept putting them in these contained classrooms. But he's one of my best friends to this day. We've known each other since we were 10. And the, the funny part to me is we always had deep-ass intelligent conversations. Mm-hmm. 
You know what I mean? Like, I knew this guy was smart and brilliant and all the things, but, like, the school system didn't. That's what, another reason why back then I used to tell them things like, this whole system is trash. Y'all don't know how to evaluate people. You definitely don't know how to evaluate people of color. Mm. Mm. So you highlighted some of the adversities that you faced. And you also highlighted some of the turning points or like positive moments um, in your story. Is there anything else that stands out to you that you want to share? Yeah, there are. um, I've been so fortunate to have won awards and fellowships and pitch competitions around my business and grants. And I mean, like I've been super fortunate, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And the one thing I always try to point out anytime I'm allowed to speak publicly about those things with, you know, like if there's an award ceremony or a blah, 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 or I get an interview around those things is that it's really easy to slip into the narrative of I'm so great mm-hmm. and I work so hard uh, versus the reality of the narrative, which is, you know, nobody's looking or able to see, you know, the 50 plus people that stood up for me when I didn't know how to stand up for myself. Right. That held me really and more than standing up for me, like held me up when I had given up on myself. Remember I told you there was a time I couldn't see myself in my thirties. It was other people holding space for me, right? This is what you're supposed to do with adolescents and young adults and emerging adults in their Mm twenties. Like you are, when you're older, the loving thing to do is to use your prefrontal cortex that's still developing for them (laughs) Use your prefrontal cortex on their behalf and help them vision, vision for them, listen to them, and then do some of that visioning for them and mirror that back at them and say, these are my visions. This is what I'm hearing in you. And this is what I'm hearing from you. And this is the greatness that I'm seeing in you to come if you would invest in that potential. And how can Mm -hmm. I help you invest in it? That's what so Mm -hmm. many people did for me without me even having to ask for it. They just stood up and did it for me. And that is such a gift. Mm. Again, it's one of the things, the gifts I didn't know I needed to ask for and didn't know I needed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that you only know in retrospect when you look back at your life, but there would be no fellowships. There'd be no awards. There'd be no business. There'd be no pitch competitions to win. There'd be no podcast interview right now. Had those 50 plus, maybe at this point, even in my life, I'm really talking about maybe like 150 plus people who have done that for me. Mm. Um, and they're just as much a part of my success and a part of you know this uh, journey that I'm on, and I hold a lot of those people in my heart. I hit them up sometime and let them know. Just like I still think about that when I was 16, when I was 15. You know, I and I talk to my mom like that because she's definitely one of those 150, mm-hmm. probably number one, right? It's like, yeah, mom, you held space for me when I couldn't do that for myself, and even when you didn't know how, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking about how trauma survivors um, often experience difficulty looking toward the future, like what you were sharing, not being able to um, envision yourself to um, to 30 or even to 20, maybe even to, to 18. Um, that that's a common experience for people who've who've been through adversity and who have been through trauma. And I think it's such a powerful thing to know that there were people in your life that held space for your future vision, even when you didn't know what that was. Mm -hmm. And I'm also thinking about how oftentimes we, we know that people have experienced trauma. We know that people have experienced adversity and we say, um, 
we make it the responsibility of these like professional helpers, like licensed clinical social workers and psychologists and um, these treatment providers with multiple degrees. But it's also really important for um, for us to acknowledge that anybody in our community can hold space for our future vision. And that can be a teacher. It can be a coach. It can be a clinician. It can be a social worker. It can be your mom. It can be your grandparent. It can be um, your music teacher. And um, I just want to highlight that and point that out because I'm hearing that as being a really important part of your story. And for those people who are listening who may think that, oh, um, professional helpers are the only ones who can help trauma survivors um, achieve their, their future vision. <clears throat> Let me say that again, because <laughs> my voice went out. Um, you know, there may be some people who are listening who think that people who are professional helpers are the only ones who can support trauma survivors in making space for their future. No, that's not the case. All of these different people at various points in our lives contribute to um, the sense of who we are and also who we're going to be. Yes, absolutely. And I actually think that like the best case scenario for recovery from trauma and growth, right, and just in general, is when you do have a network of people, right? I know the, the, the data says that at least one, but that's at least Right. That, that's, right. that's the bottom level. It's like if we can't do any more than that, we know they need at least connectivity, healthy attachment to one caring adult in person who can buffer the impacts of trauma, buffer the, the impact of chronic stress, blah, blah, blah. But that's the bottom. That's not where we should be aiming. You know what I mean? And so I do think um, and I talk about this a lot, like. I think what I just described to you in my story is this concept of community care versus mm. self-care, right? Like I couldn't even operationalize self-care at that point. The community had to care for me, mm-hmm. right? And in doing that, I learned elements of self-care, right? Um, so much so that that community care still exists on the inside of me. And I can pull it up, right? That's the power of a memory faculty, a really complex memory faculty or faculties at that, that we're still understanding as a mechanism, but that I understand from a visceral experiential way through art and art making and, and the idea of ritual and the idea of honoring time through making and through ritual and being able to refer back to it when you need it. I have these really powerful moments and experiences of love and accountability and support and collaboration and co-creation of my life and design of my life that I can go back to in those moments where I need it the most. Mm -hmm. And then the moments where I feel like I have lost my way, Mm. because I still feel like that sometimes. Like, I mean, my health, I lost my way with my health about three, four years ago, you know, because of the work and overworking and being an adult and taking on more responsibilities and being the major breadwinner in the family and blah, 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 blah. And like needing to make more money and want trying to grow my career. And that means you just work more because the reward for hard work and good work is more hard work, right. particularly if you're black and white, right? And you're not always compensated well for it. So, so you got to work even more, right? And so there's just all this stuff going, right? And then I had imposter syndrome and I was at achievement issues of like, you know, where's my next thing coming from? Like I got to getting more because that's how life works. And, and I have to keep making money because I'm the person that if something goes wrong in my family, you know, I love my family and I'm not in any way saying that this is a 
bad burden, but it is a burden to be the one that like, if my mother were to pass, it's probably going to fall to me to take care of a lot of that, right? So I had to, my mother and I had to have serious conversations. And I, so I said, the responsible thing to do is let's get you a life insurance plan. And I got a life insurance plan. And, you know, we had to have difficult conversations, but I had to, you know, really start organizing my life in a new way in adulthood that, again, I've not visioned myself into mm. before, right? And so I lost some sense of my health in, in that journey over the last, um, what am I, 35? Yeah, almost 40 years now. But within the last year, I got it back, right? But one of the things that helped were the people around me who loved me enough to talk to me about my health and mm. well-being, right? And support me through it. And didn't judge me for, you know, the weight I had gained or overworking, mm. right? And held space for me to figure it out on my own, right? An ex-partner of mine who, you know, could challenge me on my perceptions around work and my health. Um, and hold space for me there, right? Even though we're not together, I still honor and appreciate that space that they held for me to help me see that and understand that, like, my wellness is the key to all the things that I want to achieve mm. in life. And, um, you know, and then thinking back to, like, times I had to overcome stuff and thinking about all the ways that people spoke to me and supported me in action and activity. Remember when I couldn't stand up for myself, that whole comment, or when I couldn't even hold my own self up to mm -hmm. keep going and that for me, you know, I was able to pull on that and it was pretty, I won't say it was super easy, but it was easier than I thought it would be to make the change. Consistency is hard, but it was easier than I thought it would be to like do that work. So yeah, you need community mm. care to really have full and total mm. self-care. What do you see for yourself in the future? What's your future vision? Yeah, I want to go back to school um, more out of a responsibility than a necessity at this okay. point. Um, because I do think that it is important that the work that I'm doing um, lives on beyond me. And not because of me, but because it's legacy work. This is work I've inherited from those who have come before me in the fight for equity and justice um, and using science in that space and art and this really interdisciplinary focus on how we think about policy, how we think about community, how we think about humanity, shared humanity, how do we answer the challenges of racism and xenophobia and homophobia and transphobia and classism, mm -hmm. et cetera, and give ourselves to the world that is worthy of the dignity of our humanity that legacy work always needs to continue to be built on. And I'm building on the work of my predecessors. And I think it's my responsibility to add to that canon, right? It's not my sole responsibility, but it is part of my responsibility to continue adding to that canon for the next group of people to continue picking up the work, building on and iterating, you know, this world towards its best self. Um, and so in terms of my career, I don't think I need a PhD to keep growing my career, but that's not what this is about. This is about, impact, justice, equity, shared humanity, operationalizing love. Um, and to do that, I do think there's a responsibility that I have to add to the canon in an okay. official way. Um, so that's a big part of it. My, my next two-year, three-year plan and like mm -hmm. growing into that. I also want to, um, you know, with that work, I do, I want to start my own think mm. tank, um, which I'm 
in the process of doing now, which is pretty amazing. There's some projects I'm working on that are seeding that and, you know, being housed at a think tank already is making that even easier for me to like actualize, mm. which is exciting. Um, and then also like just creating learning content and, and thinking about the ways that people need to close the gap and understanding um, a lot of the things that I was talking about at the top, right? Like how do you close the gap around understanding the science of our humanity, the mechanisms of how our humanity plays mm-hmm. out at the individual and the group or systems level. Um, there's just a lot that people need to learn. And I want to be a part of that learning journey for people, um, not necessarily like Michael O'Brien, but like a production, media production space that's creating digital content and learning content that's palpable, mm-hmm. right? That can help people learn some basics that help them reframe their potential for growth and change and the potential for systems to grow and change. Mm. I love how it's like your vision is multifaceted, includes like multiple different things. And I love how ambitious you are. Oh, I am very ambitious. I love it. (laughs) And I know that you are going to make all these different things happen too. Thank you. I appreciate it. So are there any favorite or life-changing resources that you want to share with listeners? Hmm. You know, it's funny. I'm like, yeah, I'm sure I know there are. And I'm trying to like, <laughs> it's when you need it, you're trying to like go on it. Um, you know, a life changing resource to me, one is spirituality. Um, some tools that help you make meaning out of life that ground you in the now, um, in the present moment. Cause so many things, trauma included, either push us toward the past or push us towards sometimes the most hurtful versions Mm -hmm. of the future or these ridiculously overly optimistic versions of the future that are not grounded (laughs) in reality. Um, And I think all three of those spaces are just not the Mm -hmm. healthiest, right? It's okay to be optimistic, but it's not okay to be so optimistic that you've thrown away a lot of options. You know what I mean? It's also okay to think about the past and learn from the past, but not to live out of the past as if mm-hmm. it's right now, right? Um, and it's not healthy or good or okay to only learn to think and expect that your future is full of repetitive mm-hmm. trauma, right? Like none of those three dispositions are going to help you in life. Right. Um. And so I think spiritual practice, whichever one you want to connect with or amalgamate your own, you know, whatever is going to help you make meaning out of your life experiences, out of the world around you, out of your place in the world, in a way that helps to ground you in the fullness of your potential, the fullness of your worth, um, the dignity of your humanity, the dignity of others' humanity, the right that other people have to exist the way that they choose to exist, anything that's grounding you in that space and allowing you to do in the context of now, what will set you up for your best future and to connect with people and all those things. Like that's just, I know that's been mm. monumental in my life and I can only mm. speak for myself. Um, but I know through looking at like anthropology and the history of our, I'm obsessed with the history of our species. That's why Sandy mm-hmm. Bloom and I are friends, right? We, <laughs> we are, I think we, we both are respite in each other and like, oh my God, mm-hmm. you read those things too? Right? So, <laughs> it was a, 
I love her. Uh, I appreciate her so much. Um, but yeah, our, our species has been making meaning for mm. a very long time. And spirituality, you know, re- religion is a way, a codified way to organize spirituality for the masses. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, or for large groups. So religion is a tool of spirituality, but it in itself is mm-hmm. not spirituality. Um, so with that said, I, I do think that, when again, when we look at our the history of our species, the history of humankind, meaning-making is part and parcel, and spirituality are part and parcel to mm-hmm. our existence. Mm-hmm. Thank you for doing this. I think this is important for people to hear these kinds of thoughts and experiences connected to ideas around trauma and growth and recovery because, you know, the <laughs> sometimes people hear, I've been hearing this a lot, like, oh my God, if I have four more aces, I can die early. And I'm just like, yes. right. And it's, I, I think that part of the issue is that we're not balancing knowledge and understanding of adversity and trauma with knowledge and understanding of strength and hope. So um, things can feel very overwhelming and life is overwhelming. But, um, you know, something that I'm constantly repeating is that for every story of trauma, there are always stories of strength and resilience. And, you know, I wanted to create the space for for different people that I know, uh, different people that have been a part of my village um, that I have built relationships with to be able to highlight their adversity, to normalize the fact that all of us are experiencing various forms of adversity, but also to say all of us have unique strengths. All of us have have insights and things that we can take and we can use to inspire and empower other people too. Yes, well said. Well, thank you, thank you. Thank you for listening to Real Stories. The resources referenced by today's guest speaker will be included in the episode description. For more information about me, Dr. Megan Corrado, and my work with the story's trauma narrative intervention, please visit my website, www.storiesguide.com. Also, feel free to follow my story social media pages on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Remember that for every story of trauma and adversity, there's always a story of strength and resilience.